social issues. And by golly, we have a social issue for you today. And I'm so glad that so many of you are here to, uh, yeah, to learn about this issue because uh, I only learned about this issue just a few years ago and I've been in this country for about 65 years. So I'm rather ashamed, but anyway, that's how it is. Uh, my name is Klaus Jericho and I'm your moderator today. Um, just to have to go through some of these uh, routine announcements, please turn off your electronic devices. Uh, if you want to eat lasagna today, uh, you have to pay $14 for that and put that in the bowl, please. And if you only want coffee or tea, it's $2. Um, the program, uh, after my introduction, I will ask uh, Dr. Nowlin to give his presentation. That will take about 25 minutes or 30 minutes. And that will be followed by lunch. And then we have questions and answers thereafter. And this is information is mainly for the uh, for the TV people and so on. Now, I, I must make a few comments about the history of why we are having this session here today. <clears throat> and that goes back to 1952 when I became a landed immigrant in Gander, Newfoundland. Mary, where are you? There she is. In Newfoundland, in Gander, yes. And then 17 years later, I arrived in Lethbridge. And that was the first time, that's after 17 years, that's the first time I even essentially heard about or saw or had any contact with people who had lived here for thousands of years. And that was really quite a, uh, yeah, it was an emotional experience for me. And then uh, the next thing that came, of course, at that time, wife and family and uh, soccer and uh, hiking in the mountains and work and all these sort of things, that's what my life was, and I had no time or inclination to get my head into another culture. So I just left that alone. And then in 2017, believe it or not, that's close to 55 years later, <coughs> I, Dave Shepard, Dave over there, and, uh, and I, we would have our monthly uh, summit meetings at Tim Hortons, and he, uh, educated me on, on this issue of Aboriginal rights. And I was dumbfounded. I mean, you know, by this time, I was close to 80 years old, and I was dumbfounded, and I ashamed that I didn't know. So he taught me all about the legalities of the, of the issue. <coughs> and, um, and we had wonderful discussions about it. Uh, and, and they're far-reaching. And without Dave, I would have missed... Uh, the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Program. I would have missed it totally. I don't know why and how, but I would have missed it. Um, and how much more is left to be known? So, and then comes Christmas, last Christmas, and we have the annual Christmas gatherings with Barbara Hoyt and family. And there I talked to Christopher. That's the last time I talked to him. Christopher, from now on, he's going to be Dr. Dowlin. Uh, and he told me that he does, he teaches Aboriginal rights and Canadian law at Langana uh, College in Vancouver. I said, you must be joking. And uh, that was it. He, I seconded him and he's sitting here right now and he will tell us all about this issue. I couldn't believe that I knew somebody who, who was so familiar with the issue. So 
the speaker is highly qualified. He, uh, he has a law degree, he has a PhD degree, and he specializes in Aboriginal law and Canadian law, and he teaches this, and he taught it at the SFU, the Simon Fraser University, and as I said, at the college now. So without further ado, before taking any more time, I'm going to talk, uh, ask Dr. Nowlin to come up and explain to us what actually these words mean. Are Aboriginal rights and Canadian law reconcilable? And I had to look up in the dictionary what reconcile means. It means that making friends again, making harmony again with people you had a different relationship with in the past. So, Dr. Nowland, please come up and explain the title to us. Thank you, Klaus. Uh, I know it's not an award ceremony, but I, I do want to uh, say thank you to a few people before I um, just begin. I want to thank Klaus Jericho, Knut Peterson. Uh, I want to thank, uh, I see a bunch of friends and family in here, and I want to thank them for coming. My father, Everett, my mother, Megan, uh, my mother, Barb, my sister, Megan, my aunt, Kath. I see some friends. Um, I see Diana Lanier, her son, uh, Addison. Um, and others, uh, others who might be here that I've, I've got poor eyesight, so right now I've got my reading glasses on, so don't take it personally if I don't quite see you yet. But uh, yeah, I want to thank all of you for coming. It ma matters a lot to me. Um, okay, so are Aboriginal rights reconcilable with Canadian law? As with many good questions, uh, the answer is yes and no, in my, in my view. Remember, these are just my uh, opinions. Uh, the question requires us to consider the relationship of Aboriginal rights to Canadian law. Uh, technically speaking, Aboriginal rights are a product of Canadian law. That's to say, we talk about Aboriginal rights within the conceptual confines of Canadian law. We could call them Aboriginal freedoms because they comprise Indigenous social practices that the Canadian legal system is supposed to respect in the sense of let be. They comprise typically uh, traditional customs uh, ancestral customs of fishing, trapping, feasting, uh, holding religious ceremonies. I'm not an ethnographer, I'm not an anthropologist, so I don't know if Indigenous peoples traditionally consider themselves free to tr fish, to trap, to feast, etc. I don't know if they ever imagine themselves having a right to do these things. I doubt that was the case. I do know that many Indigenous communities were simply thankful to the Creator for the land, the water, the trees, and the animals with which they interacted, and they felt duty-bound to respect all these natural entities. Uh, since the Industrial Revolution, Westerners have largely scoffed at such a worldview, uh, but climate change is revealing, you know, who has, is starting to, to give, to, to kind of put some, some flexion on that, on the indigenous kind of worldview in that sense, and, uh, and show us kind of sense how wise it might, might be, might well be. So let's go now to prior occupation. Uh, referring kind of to, to what Klaus was saying. Uh, in the 17th century, and even, even well before, like even in the 16th century, but the records get more Spartan, but it, say in the 17th century, European explorers and French missionaries uh, began to interact with indigenous people. 
I'm going to see now if I can work this uh, slide. Um, I've got a slide here, and I think I, from what I can see, you probably won't be able to read that, so I, I apologize. I've just got a few slides for you today, but some of them, sometimes I find the quotations really apt, and they do better justice than I could. But this is just to give you a picture of, of one uh, kind of explorer's kind of perception, right? The first Indians with whom the Jesuit missionaries came in contact were the wandering Algonquian tribes. Of these, the poorest uh, were the Montagniers who lived along the north shore of, of the St. Lawrence River, Lawrence River in the vicinity of the Saguenay. Um, richer were the Algonquin, whose hunting grounds were to be found further up the St. Lawrence above Quebec. The Algonquian tribes were not gathered together in fortified towns like the nations of the Iroquois Confederacy or the Hurons. They lived and hunted in small family groups and wandered hither and yon through the northern woods and valleys. So I wanted to give you that picture just to show you, to give you some idea that some indigenous groups were a bit more nomadic, but others were actually settled, like in small villages and had, little, had, had, had small settlements that way. This is the starting point for the understanding of Aboriginal rights and where they really do begin. I'm now going quote to quote for you, again, because it's better for me to quote than for me to kind of paraphrase, uh, a, a, a bit from uh, a 1996 Supreme Court of Canada decision called R.V. Vanderpeet, and that's, I'm quoting the words of uh, the then Chief Justice, Justice Lemaire, to quote him. In my view, the doctrine of Aboriginal rights exists and is recognized and affirmed by Section 35.1 because of one simple fact. When Europeans arrived in North America, Aboriginal peoples were already here, living in communities on the land and participating in distinctive cultures as they had done for centuries. It is this fact, and this fact above all others, which separates Aboriginal peoples from all other minority groups in Canadian society and which mandates their special legal and now constitutional status." End of quote. So you know the reference that I made to Section 35.1. That's Chief Justice Lemaire made that reference. Now, what is that? Section 35.1 is, uh, is, uh, is, is, one, is one provision in Canada's most fundamental law. It's the supreme law of the land, our Constitution Act 1982. It says, the existing Aboriginal and treaty rights of the mm -hmm. Aboriginal peoples of Canada are hereby recognized and affirmed. So this is the short answer to the, to, the, to, the, to the question of the day of whether Aboriginal rights are reconcilable with Canadian law. That short answer being yes, because if the answer is no, then the Canadian Constitution is internally inconsistent or is internally irreconcilable. If we have our, if we have our supreme law of the land in 1982, being the Constitution Act of 1982, containing a provision, Section 35.1, that says existing Aboriginal uh, rights and treaty rights are hereby recognized and affirmed, well, that's Canadian law. So, so Canadian law is recognizing and affirming Aboriginal rights. So there's no irreconciliation there. Okay. So uh, to go back a few years before 1982 to a case called Calder and the Attorney General of BC in 1973, another Sup Supreme Court of Canada justice, Justice Judson, made the same idea uh, that, uh, that I just quoted to you from Justice Lemaire but precisely in relation to Aboriginal title, because there's Aboriginal rights and there's Aboriginal title. So I'll read Justice, Judgen, Justice Judson's uh, uh, statement. It is clear that Indian title in British Columbia cannot owe its origin to the proclamation of 1763. The fact is that when the settlers came, the Indians were there, organized in societies and occupying the land as their forefathers had done for centuries. This is what Indian title means and it does not help one in the solution of this problem 
to call it a personal or usufructuary right. What they are asserting in this action is that they had a right to continue to live on their lands as their forefathers had lived and that this right has never been lawfully extinguished. Now the point there is quite simple. As a matter of international law, one nation should only be permitted to restrict the freedoms of another nation lawfully. Okay. So what you saw was a reference to there was whether any kind of uh, indigenous title by this British Columbia ban had been extinguished, and that would mean lawfully. So that's a rule of law, and none of us, I think, would even quarrel with that today. I don't think any one of us could imagine, for example, um, one nation today uh, kind of encroaching upon another nation's freedoms, another community's freedoms, uh, unlawfully. So the arriving 17th century Europeans claimed land for themselves, thereby curtailing the movements of the indigenous peoples and encroaching upon their traditional ways of life. Now, did they do so lawfully? Did they lawfully extinguish these Aboriginal rights and freedoms as they were staking out land for themselves for various reasons, uh, uh, religious, conversion, um, political? So that takes us to treaties. By the mid-18th century, um, by the mid-18th century, imperialistic France and Britain fought for domination of, of what's today North America. Each, Nathan, each nation had formed strategic military alliances with different indigenous societies, and they formed political accords known as the Peace and Friendship Treaties, sometimes known as Georgian Treaties because they were during the reign of King George. Uh, some of these, some of these uh, treaties contained explicit trading clauses, which in effect were trading clauses, like were trading rights. Now let me just, if I can do this, Okay, there's a, there's a, again, I think it might be hard for you to see, there's a bit of a picture of, um, of 1760 and, and kind of the warring, the, the, the warfaring and the jurisdictions going back between um, Britain and France. And if I was to just punch that back one, there's the same kind of time period leading up to 1760 and you see that, you see that geographical area. Basically that's an area um, reflecting uh, Algonquin, Algonquin Iroquois um, uh, occupation. Okay, now let me just, uh, well, I'll leave that there for the moment. Um, okay, so to treaties. The treaties were considered sacred to the indigenous sig signatories, um, and they were renew ren considered renewals of subsisting political relations. I'll quote for you from, uh, from an indigenous scholar, uh, James Youngblood Henderson. Uh, this is to quote from him, an article of his. These first nations conceived of treaties as living agreements rather than as mere documents. The agreements created a permanent living relationship beyond the particular promises. Thus, most of the treaties were in reality renewal ceremonies of subsisting relationships. For these reasons, First Nations hold the treaties as sacred. He wrote that in a 1994 article. A couple of years later, there was a case before the Supreme Court of Canada called R.V. Badger, and there the Supreme Court of Canada said, treaties are sacred promises and the Crown's honour requires the court to assume that the Crown intended to fulfil its promises. Now, if I can... Uh, so this slide here is meant to show you a very, very recent decision from Ontario. Um, it's, it's got here a 2018 uh, citation, so that just means it's from the Ontario Superior Court. And what was being fought out kind of there was a claim that the Ontario Crown, the Provincial Crown, had failed for a, for a very lengthy period of time, like for decades, to honour what was called an, augment, uh, an annuities clause 
where when, it, when, a, when a, you see here these 1815 treaties, when those were signed with the Huron and the Superior uh, bands, um, the government had said, uh, to the extent that our mines start to produce wealth and generate profit, we will increase your annual, uh, kind of these, uh, these annuities. And they even then put in there, um, depending on the extent of profit, kind of, we'll actually augment those annuities. And so that happened up for a while, but then the provincial Ontario government stopped paying those uh, augmented annuities, and they were taken to court for it. So here's the, um, here's the justice in the uh, Ontario decision. I'll read it for you in case you can't read that. But it's to make the point that even today, like in terms of last year, you have an Ontario Superior Court judge uh, commenting on this renewal relationship. So to read it, the judge says, in 1815, the Crown and the Anishinaabe shared a vision that the Anishinaabe and the Settler Society could continue to coexist in a mutually respectful and beneficial relationship going into the future. Today, we arrive at that point in the relationship again. It is therefore incumbent on the parties to renew the treaty relationship now and in the future. So again, um, kind of uh, indicating that renewal aspect. So let me now jump ahead. Well, not too far ahead. Like uh, I was mentioning that we're back in 1760 here. Now let me bring up a case to illustrate how this applies, how, how a very kind of historic treaty still has modern contemporary application. By the end of 1761, all of the Mi'kmaq villages in Nova Scotia had entered into peace and friendship treaties with the British. Paul Laurence, chief of the Le Havre tribe, signed one of these treaties on March 10, 1760. I believe it actually was in, in Halifax. It stipulated, among other things, and I'll now quote, I do further engage that we will not traffic, barter, or exchange any commodities in any manner, but with such persons or the managers of such truck houses as shall be appointed or established by His Majesty's governor at Lunenburg or elsewhere in Nova Scotia or Acadia. This was a trade clause, and it established that the Le Havre people would restrict their commerce to trade to truck houses established by the British Crown, essentially trading posts. Now, in 1999, the Supreme Court of Canada concluded that that 1760 clause, trading clause, continued to give the Mi'kmaq people the right to trade, like commercially, in fish, because that's not a typical Aboriginal right to, to commercially fish. It's typically to food fish. But here's a couple of sentences, a couple of paragraphs, the opening two paragraphs of this decision that I often read to my class because I find it very beautiful and very moving. And it's not rare when, this, when I would say that about a Supreme Court of Canada judge. Um, to quote, on an, on, on, on an August morning six years ago, the appellant and a companion, both Mi'kmaq Indians, slipped their small outboard motorboat into the coastal waters of Palmcat Harbor and Tiganish County, Nova Scotia, to fish for eels. They landed 463 pounds, which they sold for $787.10, and for which the appellant was arrested and prosecuted. Next paragraph. On an earlier, that's not, and that's referring to 1993. On an earlier August morning, some 235 years previously, the Reverend John Seacombe of Chester, Nova Scotia, a missionary and sometime dining companion of the governor, noted with satisfaction in his diary, now I'm double quoting here, uh, two Indian squaws brought seal skins and eels to sell, end of quote. That transaction was apparently completed without arrest or other incident. The thread of continuity between these events, it seems, is that the Mi'kmaq people have sustained themselves in part by harvesting and trading fish, including eels, since Europeans first visited the coast of what is now Nova Scotia in the 16th century. The appellant says that they are entitled to continue to do so now by virtue of a treaty right agreed to by the British Crown in 1760. That's the end of quote. 
So there's Justice Binney kind of setting the, setting the, the, setting the kind of the tone for, uh, for what was what's called the Marshall case, um, which did actually, by a thin majority, confer on uh, Donald Marshall Jr., okay, the right to catch eels for, and, and to sell them. Donald Marshall Jr., some of you, that name may ring a bell to some of you. It is actually the same Donald Marshall that, Jr. that some of you might have heard of, which is an indigenous man who was wrongfully convicted in Canada and is more or less the first person to have, uh, to have brought such attention to wrongful convictions in Canada. And Donald Marshall Jr., well before this particular uh, outing of going to get eels, spent several years in a Canadian prison uh, for murder, for a murder he did not commit. Now, to come to uh, the Royal Proclamation. In 1763, after England defeated France, the British King George issued a proclamation that did many things. It actually created the colony of Quebec. But the so-called Indian part is what, introduced, what, uh, what, is what interests us today. And when I say Indian, I put that in double quotes. Um, it prohibited any private person from buying indigenous land. Such land had to be sold through the British Crown. And I'll quote from the Royal Proclamation. If at any time any of the said Indians should be inclined to dispose of the said lands, the same shall be purchased only for us in our name at some public meeting or assembly of the said Indians. End of quote. King George further decreed that, to quote again in the Royal Proclamation, that the several nations or tribes of Indians with whom we are connected and who live under our protection should not be molested or disturbed in the possession of such parts of our dominions and territories as not having been ceded to or purchased by us are reserved to them or any of them as their hunting grounds, end of quote. So those two passages are in the Royal Proclamation. Um, let me just see if I can, okay. So here's a, here's a section 25 of the, uh, of the Canada Constitution Act 1982. Again, this is our constitution. Here's section 25. It's making a reference to, to, the, um, to the charter rights that are kind of precede section 25, your right to liberty, uh, life, liberty, security, the person, rights to counsel, et cetera, et cetera, to vote, all that. And then it, you see here what it says. It says, they must not abrogate or derogate from any Aboriginal treaty or other right pertaining to Aboriginal peoples. And it says, including, uh, and there you see it there, the Royal Proclamation, any rights in the Royal Proclamation. So the Royal Proclamation is actually Im also embedded in our 1982 Constitution. So that's also Canadian law. All right. Let's just, um, and so, so what, is, what essentially that main passage that I read to you from, from the Royal Proclamation tells is it says that it basically conferred on indigenous peoples the right to hunt, uh, not to be molested in their hunting grounds, so the right to hunt on unceded land. And unceded is an important part that we're coming to. British North America Act, let's, jump, let's now jump 100 and some years from the Royal Proclamation to the, basically to the founding of Canada. Um, so we get the British North America Act, and in, in, in Section 91, um, Parliament acquired, the, well, it conferred upon itself the constitutional authority to make laws in relation to Indians and lands reserved for Indians. And again, that's a double quote. That's right in the, that's right in the British North America Act uh, that Parliament gave itself the power to make laws in relation to Indians and lands reserved for Indians. That eventually produced the uh, Federal Indian Act. I'll quote to you from, a, from one of Canada's very top Indigenous scholars, a fellow named John Burroughs. Um, and here's a quote from one of his books from 2002. Perhaps nothing is more illustrative of Canada's violation of the rule of law with respect to Aboriginal peoples than the Indian Act, first passed in 1876. So what you have to appreciate, what, what Professor Burroughs is saying about that, is that what, what really happened there was that uh, the Canadian federal government 
gave itself the power to make laws in relations to, again, double quotes, Indians, without any consent by Indian people. Just a, just a flat out unilateral assertion of kind of legal sovereignty over, over these indigenous people. So that's what he meant by that violation uh, of the rule of law. So now, just to kind of move along, let's go to the numbered treaties, okay, in terms of, again, to illustrate for you the idea of how treaties, how these rights are reflected in these treaties. Throughout the 19th century, as Canadian society moved westward, the Canadian provincial governments entered into several more treaties with indigenous peoples. These treaties were essentially land purchases by provincial governments from indigenous peoples. That's to say they were like essentially land transfers on, on paper. Um, indigenous land was ceded um, to the crown and Aboriginal rights to hunt, fish, and trap kind of variously were conferred upon the indigenous treaty signatories. It was kind of like a quid pro quo kind of thing for in exchange for the, your land, we're going to give you the rights to hunt, fish, trap, etc. So that's kind of the, that was a bit of a standard formula for what are called the numbered treaties as essentially uh, uh, basically migration moved westward. So because we're in Lethbridge, I thought we'll look at a, use a quick example of a Treaty 7 to show how this kind of plays out for real life in, in, in courts. Okay, thank you, okay. So, uh, well now if I've got five minutes, I better be fast. Uh, here's, here's a quote, so I've got a case from, from Good Striker here, it's called RV Good Strike. It's a decision rendered by um, Judge Legrandeur here from Lethbridge, and it's a Treaty 7 case. And to quote him, Treaty 7 enshrines the treaty rights between the Crown and the Blackfoot, Blood, Pagan, Sarsi, and Stony Indians, located predominantly in southwestern Alberta. The treaty provides that the Aboriginal signatories, quote, shall have the right to pursue their vocations of hunting throughout the tracts rendered as herein described throughout, end of quote. Uh, Judge Legrander continues, no specific reference is made in the treaty to the fishing, to, to fishing uh, uh, the right to fish or things incidental to fishing. The Crown takes the position that Treaty 7 contains no fishing rights that are protected by the provision, uh, provisions of Section 35.1 of the Constitution Act 1982. So because I'm short on time now, the, what was, went on here was an Indigenous uh, fellow went fishing on a, on, in an area slightly above uh, a closed area, like a, a pardon me, was fishing in, a, in, a, in, a, in an area closed uh, by, by, the, by the fisheries uh, uh, people because for conservation purposes. And uh, at the end of the day, Judge Legrandeur interpreted the Treaty 7 to say, you know, Indigenous people actually do have fishing rights on top of hunting rights. Uh, but in that particular case, um, he, found, he concluded that that fellow could have gone upstream, uh, I, th I think he says 300 meters or something, and fished in a lawfully open zone. So, what I, so the, the point I'll make quickly there is, is just to kind of point out how courts deal with these issues is that they first have to decide whether the treaty does actually contain the right that's claimed by the Aboriginal person. But once they do that, they can then, then they have to assess whether the right's been uh, in, uh, infringed upon by, say, provincial legislation, hunting and fishing legislation. And then once they have to do, do that, they have to ask themselves whether it's justified. And that's usually the real kicker in all of these cases is, has the government justified its kind of statutory or legislative kind of intrusion or encroachment upon a, a fishing practice or a hunting custom? That's usually the, the, how these work. Now, the government can justify itself, and I'll kind of wrap this up with kind of maybe leading into the pipeline, okay, uh, is that the government has to justify itself by what's called a compelling and substantial public, pur uh, uh, public purpose or social purpose. And uh, economic development is one of those, forestry, mining, those, those can all be justified uh, as, as uh, they, those can all provide justifications for encroaching upon Aboriginal rights. Another one of these, uh, uh, one of these primary ones happens to be conservation. 
So in many cases of Aboriginal fishing cases, for example, the Indigenous people are up against whether, whether the government is, just, is justly encroaching upon their right for conservation purposes. Now, having said that, what I'll just say is to quickly move on to two final points then, is to, just a, a note on the Trans Mountain kind of Kinder Morgan pipeline kind of issue. That's a Treaty 8 issue, and many Indigenous communities in Treaty 8 are saying if that pipeline comes through, it'll, affect our, uh, it'll, it'll adversely affect our communities and our way of life. Um, I had a quote for you from that. Uh, let me just put it this way then. So that case was lost. If you can kind of think back to a year ago when, when the big political thing happened and, uh, and, the, and, the, and basically the government lost on that, on that lawsuit, it was because the duty to consult the Indigenous people had not been met by the uh, federal government. And so, so I won't quote from that, but, that's, but, the, but at the end of the day, to just to cover off that part of the law, okay, is that the state of the law is this. The, Whenever, whenever the provincial or federal government wants to make any kind of development uh, that, that is going to, say, adversely impact a, an Indigenous way of life that, that, say, that is recognized, say, by our courts or by the law, um, they, uh, they, they have to consult, okay, and, and, those, and the, very, the levels of consultation vary depending on the severity of maybe the impacts, but they do not have to get consent, okay, and that's really maybe, maybe that's the, the issue that kind of comes to our, to our question here, is that reconcilable? So, what will happen if the government does not get consent? If it says, you know, we've consulted and we've done all, we've, we've met our duty to consult, and you're still not consenting to that particular Aboriginal ban, they can still go ahead and develop. And they might well do that. I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. They might well do that with the Trans Mountain, uh, Trans Mountain Kinder Morgan pipeline. And the way that these cases play themselves out in reality, then, is what will happen is if they do that, they'll, they are most likely to be sued, many, many, perhaps many times over by, by many bans. And then they go to court and they defend themselves for having justified, they'll say, well, we didn't need to consent, this is in the Canadian interest, this is in the public interest. And if the courts agree with them, it's all, it's all good for the, for the government, okay? But if the courts don't agree with them and says you, you actually violated, you, you, you didn't have a justification, then it's a payout and, and it's compensation. And the compensation is just to the tune of millions, tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars. And that's how these cases play themselves out. And that might, that might well play itself out that way with Kinder Morgan. Klaus, am I done? Because if not, I have one last thing. Go ahead. Okay, so what I'd like to do is just end with one quick point on, on the United Nations uh, Declaration of, um, uh, it's, called, it's called UN DRIP, and uh, it's basically the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. Um, basically, it's, it's currently before the, uh, before the uh, it's a bill, Bill C-262, Bill C-262, and it's before the Senate right now being read. And what will happen there is if that bill passes, um, it's, it's, a, it's a very short bill, and it's basically um, uh, federal law that will now incorporate uh, the UN Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And from there, th those, many of those rights uh, speak to um, uh, Indigenous self-determination, self-government. And so that'll put a new layer on this kind of Canadian landscape if, if and when that bill is passed. I had, I had some really nice things I wanted to read about it, Klaus, but I think I'm out of time. So 